Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Let's do it. So joining us today, we're going to talk all about med admissions. Um, Joining us today will be Dr. Leila Amiri who is currently uh, Associate Dean for Admissions at the Robert Larner School of Medicine, College of Medicine, I'm sorry, at the University of Vermont. And the lovely Courtney Lewis, current admissions advisor here with us at MAPT, formerly Director of Admissions at Burrell College of Medicine in New Mexico. Welcome to both. And I'll let you take over, Ryan. Hello, Courtney. Hello, Dr. Amiri. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Having fun. I've uh, been rocking and rolling now for a couple hours here live for MapsCon 22 uh, and so excited to chat with one of my favorite friends in the admissions world, uh, Dr. Leila Amiri. And of course, my other favorite friends, Courtney Lewis, um, who is now a part of the MAPT team, but recently the director of admissions at Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm excited to talk about admissions because because admissions is the uh, is is the kind of I don't know the the secretive world of admissions is kind of like why I started what I did was to try to take take that secret out of the admissions world, Doctor Mary. I'll start with you. Uh, you've been in the admissions world for a few years. Uh, I won't I won't age you. Um, you've been you've been around you've been around for a little while. Um, what do you think is the big misconception that students have when it comes to what admissions committees are doing day in and day out? I think students feel that we um, are just looking at one part of their application and not really looking at the application holistically. Mm -hmm. And I can understand why they feel that way because they look at you know, the raise an impact, for example, and whether or not a student is admitted. And I think what they what they're not understanding is that it, you know, admitting a student means that we are saying that based on what you're sharing with me, I can get you through medicine. And so really it has to do not only with them, but our ability to support them. And so I'm not sure that students are aware that we have to figure out that compatibility um, between what we can provide and what they might need. Yeah. You've you've been at several different schools in your admissions committee journey. Five, five, uh, five <laughs> medical schools. 
Do you think that each school has its own flavor of what they're looking for? Or do you think what the pre-med community thinks is that it's just stats? They just want the highest MCAT score, the highest GPA. That's all they care about. You know, it's not, it's, it's gen, honestly not only the highest MCAT and the highest GPA. And I, right before this, I was at the MCAT validity committee meeting. So this is, we're bringing to close 10 years of validity study, right? And so um, students with modest MCATs and grades do get into med school and they do graduate successfully. I think really what students need to look at is that what those parameters look like are different from school to school. And so when you look at a school whose average metrics are really, really high, a 3.9 and a 520 or a 519, really that school isn't in the business of having to support people through medical school academically. And so the focus is something different than a school that has, you know, mid-range uh, numbers. And so, you know, having done holistic review facilitation for five years, it's really different from school to school. It is not the same model. And it's, it's kind of tough being an applicant because you're applying to 20, 30 schools with one application for 30 schools that have very different admissions processes. So I think that's where, where the challenge is of finding the school that is the right fit for that person. Yeah. Courtney, for finding that fit, uh, obviously a student can apply to AMCAS for allopathic schools, the majority of allopathic schools. They can apply to ACOMAS for osteopathic schools. When they're looking for a fit of a school as a former director of admissions at an osteopathic medical school, what should students be looking at in terms of, oh, this is a DO school. Here are some differences of, of what I should be looking at when applying to this school. That's a good question. I would say that specific to DO schools, I would see if it was the one that requires the DO physician uh, letter of recommendation. Similar to double AMC, you're going to be looking at, you know, potentially matriculating stats of their past classes and things like that to kind of measure yourself against. Um, as was said before, it's not all about stats. So take a look at the mission of the school. If they are predominantly looking for rural, you know, family practice med uh, physicians in medicine, or if they are close to the border and they're looking for people to work with really diverse populations. So stats, mission of the school, location, past matriculating classes, those are the things that I would suggest. Yeah. What's a big misconception in the osteopathic application process? <laughs> um, that we are somehow. How you can I... say it. You can say okay. it. Okay. <laughs> so I can, I can be transparent. Here, yes. Right? Yeah. We're all um, friends here. Yes. So I would say that something that I've heard, which is a misconception is students think that if their stats aren't as high, that they can't apply to the MD, so they're going to do their backup, oh. which is DO, yeah. which should never be uh, the mentality that you have. We're also looking for students that are um, showing us and, and signaling that they're going to make it academically as well. While we may have a bit more holistic review in some ways, I would say that um, that is a huge misconception. Yeah. So, I, I think at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to misunderstanding of data, right? When when you look at uh, 
matriculant information, MCAT GPA. AMCAS has, a, it's like a 511 and a 37 or something for MCAT and GPA for matriculant stats. A COMIS is less. It's like a 504, 505 uh, and a lower GPA. And so students assume, right, correlation equals causation of like, oh, you can be a lesser student to go to a DO school. So if you don't have high stats, you go to DO. If you have high stats, you go to MD. And it's a complete bastardization, <laughs> without lack of a better word, of, of data, of, of misinterpreting data, of going, oh, that's that's what this means, right? And so uh, it's it's something that we try to dispel all the time on all of our channels and, and social media and all of that. Of, it's, it's not just stats, and it's not just stats that separate MD and DO. So... Dr. Scott Wright, former director of admissions at UT Southwestern. Hello, my friend. Hello. Sorry, I'm late. That is dropping into the. That is okay. (laughs) You you have failed your medical school interview. You are rejected. (laughs) The admissions committee would not put up with that. Um, So you have an interesting perspective from the Texas world, um, having been the director of admissions at UT Southwestern and uh, are now the retired executive director of all of TMDSAS, interfacing with all of those Texas schools. What is different about Texas admissions, if anything, compared to to AMCAS and ACOMAS, those other allopathic and osteopathic schools? Hmm. Uh, I, I I don't think from the from the student perspective, um, it, it's really going to be a whole lot different. Uh, I think that the Texas schools obviously have their own service uh, that includes the Texas medical schools, the majority of the Texas medical schools, both MD and DO. Uh, So I I don't think that other than it being its own service, in terms of the way that things work uh, internally for the for the admissions committees, uh, for how they function in terms of interviews and uh, the the traffic rules that that govern uh, uh, a lot of the the process for uh, for the AAMC, for example, I don't think that it's going to be notably different. Now, having said that, uh, there is this thing called the match, Mm. uh, the Texas match, which is a little bit uh, different. It confuses students often, uh, but essentially it it, it works to uh, to, um, kind of uh, 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 play out to the advantage of students that are, uh, uh, it, it attempts, let me just say it attempts to, uh, offer uh, the ability for the schools to get a resolution on on the majority of the students that are going to be in their classes uh, early earlier on in the process, and it also also gives to the students the ability to know where am I where am I going this this summer uh, uh, a, a little bit earlier than than typical in in terms of the uh, medical education world. Yeah, so, yeah, I love it, Dr. Layla Amiri. Uh, having been at five different medical schools now in, in admissions capacities, when it comes to students picking schools and trying to figure out where they are going to succeed as a student, I think one of the biggest mistakes that students make is is looking at those stats like we were talking about earlier and only applying to schools where they think they, they can get in stat-wise and they don't look at everything else. Having been at so many medical schools and seeing all of the different 
programs and opportunities that each school offers and communities that they serve, patient populations that they serve, what is something that students can do to make sure that they are doing proper research into the schools so that they know they're applying to schools that will, number one, support them and what they want to do? And number two, the schools have the programs that the schools are, that the students are interested in. I really love that question. That's such a great, great question. So, so two things. One, in preparation of the application, um, you know, not all schools are going to review the application similarly. So you do the best that you can for preparation of the application, and then the school will use the pieces that they want. But I think this, it's really important for schools that value the personal statement, for the personal statement to be supported by the things that the applicant has done. So if they're, you know, I'm right now at a social justice-driven medical school, and so we get a lot of social justice content um, in the personal statements that we get. We go and look at the experiences to see that a student has actually done this type of thing and that it is really something that they've engaged with. The other part of it is, you know, look on the website and see what types of things the school offers um, to their students. If they are asking you to do the types of things that you're not interested in doing or they don't have the things that you want to do, you're really not going to be a good fit. At one of the schools um, where I worked, uh, we had a question that we explored in the admissions committee, which was, will this candidate take advantage of the unique resources and opportunities that we offer at our institution? And the only way that we could answer that was based on the content. And I really liked that question because that was also making sure that this individual is going to take advantage of what we have that's available to them. So I think it's important to, you know, we ask you to read the mission and the mission is, it's kind of the same everywhere that it is. So beyond the mission, dig into um, what's going on with the types of activities and experiences, extracurriculars that are available um, to the to their students, just to be sure that these are things that um, are supportive of, of what you want to do. I mean, wherever you go for medicine, wherever a student goes for medicine, you know, they'll come out an MD at the end, and we're all you know LCME accredited, and so the experience in terms of what we have to offer and how we assess them is going to be relatively similar. I think the journey is really important. And so we're starting to think more about what does that journey look like for the student. And so we really want to invite those students who will have a good journey with us. Yeah. The Courtney, for, for you coming from an osteopathic medical school, very similar type of question in terms of kind of what is the support that this, the student is going to have? What is the program kind of looking at the different opportunities and, and kind of background experiences that the student has? As an osteopathic medical school, what sort of unique things are you looking at in an applicant to make sure that the student is going to thrive at an osteopathic medical school, if anything different than, than any other medical school? I would say that that's probably school subjective, right? It's it's probably very similar to the MD route where there are some schools that are niche or hyper-specific in what they're looking for. And so they'll read more into the experiences or, or kind of the journey, as was said. And there are some that are a bit more generalized. Um, there are some that look at locations very heavily or... Um, background experiences. So I would say it's probably pretty similar um, with some variation depending on the school. Yeah. When when it comes to 
uh, and I'm going to throw this out to everyone uh, so we can we can all take a turn. There are lots of pieces to a medical school application. We have personal statement, activities, you have Casper, you have duet and snapshot and preview and, 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 and. It seems like it's an ever-growing list. How are medical schools reviewing this information to make determinations for an interview for an acceptance? Scott, I'll start with you. Hmm. Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, there is there there are quite a few uh, pieces to the puzzle, and I, I think it does depend a little bit on what's going to be emphasized uh, in, in that process. Where where the student is in the process, at what point along the the the, the journey of that application uh, it, it's at. But I think uh, everything. Uh, you know, uh, at least in my experience, everything is is fair game for the admissions committee to review and to uh, if, to, to to look at in terms of trying to understand uh, who this applicant is, what they're you know what they're what what they're going to bring to to the school to the school, and, and and I think one of the things that I think applicants sort of miss often is what the medical school is trying to do is craft a class. Mm-hmm. They're trying to, to craft a class that, that represents uh, a diversity, for example, that represents, uh, 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 as Layla was emphasizing, uh, that's going to be something that the students are going to, uh, to, to fit with the school and its mission, uh, for example. So I, I think there's a, a lot of um, a, a lot that the medical schools have to, to look at. Uh, and and uh, so I don't, I don't think that anything necessarily is emphasized any, any greater, but it, uh, depending on where that application is in, in the process. So for example, in the, in the final review, uh, the, uh, the interview, which wasn't available at the front end, is now available at the back end. And, uh, and they're going to be looking at, you know, how, how did the applicant uh, do in this review process, uh, in, in the interview process? And, and I know that they're, they're, depending on the medical school, there are some medical schools where uh, an applicant's uh, review will, will be greatly affected uh, by, uh, by the interview uh, in terms of how they're ranked and, and, and how, they, how they're evaluated uh, for, for, for uh, moving forward. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in, in addition to how, how it did, uh, how, how the student did, for example, a, a, a student that bomb, bombed the interview uh, in, in a grand way. I mean, <laughs> uh, the interview can can become 100 yeah. percent of the of the evaluation process. And, you know, that that that's just it. it, it conversely, uh, if, if an applicant sort of on the bubble. And then the interview might become, you know, a really big thing in terms of uh, a, a positive influence on the process. So it, it really does, in, I, I think, it, it depend on where, where the applicant is in the process and, and what the admissions committee might might uh, might concentrate on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dr. Mary, again, you have experience at, at several different schools. When it comes to all of these different pieces of the puzzle, is it? I mean, is the answer really just what, which is what we always give, like, it just, it depends. It depends on the school. 
It, it, it's exactly that. <laughs> I was going to say, and Dr. Wright, really, I mean, you, you answered the question for all of us. It depends. You can never know, right? Unless yeah. the school tells you exactly where they use, let's say, Casper and to what extent, mm-hmm. right? So do you use Casper raw? Do you have it as part of a formula? Do you have it in conjunction with the other mm-hmm. um, pieces, pieces that you're doing? So I think it's hard to craft an application so that it will meet whatever a school is looking for. Yeah. Because as you know, we've said this before many times, right, Dr. Gray, that you've seen one school's admissions process, you've seen one school's admissions process. <laughs> so it's really it's really uh, tough to say. Um, you know, over the years of doing this, the most painful part of it is inviting the student who did actually really great in the interview process, and you just don't have enough seats in your class to admit them. Yeah. So having that uh, not accepted student advising session with them is really difficult because there's nothing that you could have done better other than, you know, come through our process sooner. And that may have nothing to do, um, may have nothing to do with the, with the individual. So I, I want to say that um, applicants just need to know that. And so this is the pre-med advisor in me that a school has to, deserve them for them to go there, right? So if they are in any way uncomfortable with being who they are because they're afraid the school won't accept them, that's perfectly fine. Yeah. You know, there's other schools that will take you. The amount of energy that this person needs to expend to not be what's in their surrounding environment is not worth it. Um, So I think do the best that you can in all parts of your application within reason, right? So don't come to me and say, this 483 MCAT is really not reflective of how well I am at standardized test taking, right? I mean, just let me in and I'll show you how how I can do that when my school's sitting at a 513 and that's who I can support. So within reason, I think you prepare the best that you can and um, go through the process trusting that the med school wants you in in their seat as badly as you want to be there. Yeah. So, so two things there. You, you talked about come earlier in the process, and and we always talk about applying early because rolling admissions can hurt you uh, if you apply too late and you're a good applicant. So, making sure that you get that application in um, a good application. Don't don't rush it. Um, but but the big thing there is it's the most frustrating answer to give as an advisor to students to say it depends. It depends on the school. But I think that benefits the student, and I don't think we talk about that enough, uh, to to reframe it, to say it depends on the school, and that's good for you. Because if every school were exactly the same, and you weren't a good fit at one school, that means you're not a good fit at any school. And it's good that there are differences at every school, different processes, different things that are highlighted, different things that are uh, kind of looked at a little bit more. Uh, intently, and that helps you. Now it's it's frustrating going back to <laughs> with the, the big talk that I gave in Toronto that I think all of you were at. I, Layla, I don't know if you were there. Um, the Toronto Altus uh, um, Admission Summit was transparency. Like, why potentially? Um, do medical schools not say, hey, the interview is 50% of our admissions process. The Casper uh, falls here in our admissions process and and weighs this much. Like, I would love to see the kind of the rubrics thrown out there publicly, but we, it's it's frustrating. Um, the 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 process, I think, Courtney, if, if I threw it to you again, it, it would probably, the answer would be, 
it depends uh, uh-huh. in terms of of that process. When it comes to looking at uh, a medical school applicant and and looking at their uh, all of the pieces of that puzzle, what do you think is is a very easy thing to say no to a student? I would say if I'm looking at an application and it's clear that it was rushed and just kind of thrown in, um, where there are sections that are almost blank and they've only added, let's say, their med experience. However, in their personal statement, they're talking about all this research that they did or the clubs that they were part of. Um, And then the secondary is a bit haphazard in the response as well. If even with really great stats, I'm not getting the feeling from reviewing this applicant that they are invested in actually attending my school. And so best of luck, you know, at the other places that they've applied. I think it makes it pretty easy for me, you know, since we're having, you know, anywhere I've seen, you know, 2000 applications all the way up to 13,000. And if we're weighing that with people who have similar stats, really positive letters of recommendation, um, somewhat similar pathways, it's really easy to weed out the people that that really just did not take the time to send in a polished application in secondary. Um, so that's that's a clear and easy one for me. Yeah, holistic. Mm-hmm. In, uh, go ahead. Add to that. I'm yeah. really sorry, and, and I and I agree with what you're saying, Courtney. And you know, there's a both and here. And so I have I have a lot of um, empathy for students who apply to us from disadvantaged backgrounds or under-resourced colleges. And so I can't tell you how many not accepted advising sessions I've had. That when we have the discussion, it's like, oh my gosh, if you had just put these things in there we would have invited you and we would have accepted you because you're such a gem sitting here across from me. And I agree with, with Courtney in that, you know, we, we only have the data that's in front of us. And so I don't know how to level that playing field, but that always weighs, you know, yes. Other than, (laughs) so can I just say here, we had an event this past weekend, uh, Ryan, and um, a young woman attended our event and she said, Dr. Gray is my um, peaceful zone. (laughs) Whenever I'm really concerned, I log into one of his um, sessions and he calmed me down. It was, and it it went on. There was much more. I know we've got limited time here, so I don't give you one. No, no, keep going. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) (laughs) uh, And and so that was the piece, right, is is how how do we make that playing field a little bit better? Because I agree with Courtney. You know, I said in admissions committee, this essay is well written you know, shows careful consideration, shows thought and all of that. And on the other hand, I see a student who's, you know, used synonyms from a thesaurus that don't really fit, yeah. but it's the same meaning, but it's an awkward use and, and that hurts their application. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's really hard there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the mission that we're on is, is trying to level that playing field, especially those under-resourced schools, uh, especially with everything we're doing uh, from our mapped app standpoint. Like we, we have the opportunity to go to those schools and say, use this platform for all of your students and, and they'll, they'll know the process uh, if they use it. Um, Scott, the, 
the term holistic admissions is thrown around a lot uh, without a lot of meaning behind it. Uh, some people are very skeptical and it's like, oh, that's just a, a lawyer CYA kind of term. Uh, I think a lot of admissions committees like take hold of that and really truly want to look at holistic uh, at applications holistically. I think a lot of students look at that term and, and go, well, I have a 2.0 GPA, I have a 480 MCAT, but I have great, uh, great experiences. And it's a holistic uh, um, application review. So I'm going to be okay. Talk about holistic admissions and and kind of the the catch-22 there, what that actually means for students. Yeah, that's that's a a good question. I I think that um, in terms of my experiences, in the admissions process uh, with uh, you know a variety of schools, uh, I, I do think that it, uh, that overall, <clears throat> most medical schools really do uh, really try to pursue a process that you know whatever word you want to use, you want to use the word holistic, you want to use the word you know another word, but they do try to evaluate everything that's available to them to to, to to, in an attempt to understand who this applicant is, how successful they may be in the in the process, whether they're well suited for that institution, and whether they're well suited for medicine in general, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and I think that uh, the, the medical schools, as as was m- mentioned several times here, it is uh, that, that that they're going to use whatever tools they have in that toolbox. Uh, to, to make them, uh, to, to affect that outcome. Now, in your example that you mentioned, a 2.0 student <laughs> who is, uh, you know, this is maybe an extreme example. Yes, but, uh, I, I like but, hyperbole. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, one of the things that the medical school is trying to do is, because medical schools invest a, a large amount of, uh, of uh, effort and, and, a, and, a, and a large amount of money in, in, into medical students. Uh, to to guarantee their success, uh, to make sure that that they're going to make it through the process and and come out on the other end as a as a uh, as a physician, mm-hmm. and uh, and so the last thing that we want to do is to enroll a student that's not going to be capable of doing that, yeah. and uh, this is not good for the the school. It's certainly not good for the student who's taking out a lot of loan money uh, in most cases uh, to to go to medical school. Uh, and, and, and the, the and I think that the, the the benefit to this is shown in the very small attrition rate at, at most medical schools. The attrition rate is so you know if you look at law schools, for example, the attrition rate is is huge. Uh, sometimes up to forty percent uh, of the medical of the uh, law students don't make it through uh, to, to to the end. Uh, medical schools, on the other hand, it is a, a, a really small percentage, uh, you know, we're talking sometimes two, three percent uh, attrition rate. And so th- what that says is that the admissions process is rigorous enough to identify students who are going to be able to handle the curriculum, uh, both in terms of the, the basic curriculum, the sciences, but also the, uh, the, the uh, clinical curriculum mm-hmm. and, and are going to be successful. And so all in all, I think when we're talking about holistic review, uh, which, you know, this term goes way back, 
but really it is to try to uh, eventuate that outcome that says we're going to uh, we're going to get you in here and then we're going to make sure that we do what we can uh, as long as you are an uh, equal participant in that process to out to affect an outcome that is successful yeah Love it. Uh, we're going to open it up to Q&A here in one minute. But Courtney, I want to uh, ask one final question of you. The The admissions process is scary for students and reaching out to medical schools is, I think, even scarier. They're like, what if what if they keep a file on me? And they're like, this person asked a question. How dare they reach out to us admissions lords and let's not accept them? We have virtual fairs that a lot of the organizations put on. UC Davis is a big conference that a lot of schools show up to. MapsCon 23 is going to be in person. We're going to have a lot of medical schools there, including uh, Layla. I know she's going to be there. Um, <laughs> we're we're going to have lots, lots of opportunities um, that students have, including going to a website, finding a phone number, finding an email address, and reaching out to medical schools. When in the process should students reach out to medical schools, to the admissions committees, and why should they reach out to to ask for questions or help or whatever? Sure. I think you can start reaching out as soon as you start college. You know, if you already know what you want to do and, and this is your path, I would say don't be hesitant to reach out to the schools and talk to them about their prerequisite requirements, what they want to see, if there are additional recommended courses that maybe you want to sprinkle throughout your semesters or quarters. Um, You can create a really seamless pathway where you're not having to backtrack and fill in any gaps if you decided a bit later on in your education that this was what you wanted to pursue. But, you know, ahead of the application cycle, I would say junior and senior year, if, if you know more or less that you've covered all of your bases, it's a tremendous opportunity to build relationships with the schools as much as you can attend their visit days. If you're able to attend any free sessions that they have or chats with students and things like that. One, it helps, you know, get you familiar with the climate of the school, how easily you can converse, what kind of support that they have there just in your engagements, but also gives them an opportunity to interface with you and and get to know you a bit better and, you know, your soft skills and things like that. So I would say reach out early and often um, and attend as much as you can to, to get to know each other better. It's mutually beneficial, honestly. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, great discussion. We'll open it up to questions from the students. Now, WonderLearn asks, is it true that most U.S. medical schools want you to stay in the U.S.? And I have a chat blocking me. Would it be bad to say that I have a dream of serving African communities in an NGO like Docs Without Borders? Who wants to grab that one? Yeah. I don't think it's a problem um, for WonderLearn if you say that you have a dream of serving African communities in an NGO, but again, you would need to qualify that. So why is it that dream? What in, what what information do you have? And, um, you know, why is that the work that you want to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, you are right that we, you know, do have a physician shortage or predicting 50,000 and, you know, in the next 20 years or something. And so that wouldn't be a reason for you not to be admitted, but but help us understand why that is the passion that you have. 
Yeah. And again, going to our earlier discussion, there are medical schools out there that have those same types of passions and have relationships with with other countries to send medical students to during medical school. So find those schools and, and connect with with those schools and, and be supported through that journey. Mm-hmm. Great question. Head on curious. Cur- oh, head on curls. Uh, would you agree that applying to medical school is a bit of a numbers game? The more schools you apply to, the greater you increase your chances of getting into one. Simple stat. Scott, what do you think? Well, I, I certainly uh, wouldn't disagree with that. I, I think it's uh, you know it's an pro- uh, uh, issue of probability and uh, the so. Now, I think there is a, a, a point at which you, you have to, you know, I had a student recently whose father was in, wanting him to apply to 75 schools. <laughs> and I was like, um, um, well, uh, yeah, I don't think this is a good idea. So, the AMC loves your yeah, donation. Thank you yeah, very much. Right. <laughs> and so, but, but I, do, I, I do think that, you know, it, it, if you apply to two schools as, apply, as opposed to applying to 22 schools, yeah. are your chances going to be better? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there, there are numbers out there. I don't know. Um, it, it's interesting that the match uh, puts out good stats on those who match into specific specialties, how many programs that they apply to, those who didn't match, how many programs they apply to. I'm not sure. AAMC puts out a lot of great data. Um, and, and so everyone can go look, just Google AAMC facts and data uh, and, and look at some of those charts. I, I know the average now is, I think, 18 schools that most people apply to through AMCAS. I'm not sure if there's data out there that shows those who don't get into medical school, how many schools that they apply to versus those who did get in. And the numbers get a little bit fuzzy because there's three three application services and they don't communicate in terms of data sharing. So it, it gets a little bit hard. All right. Acomas has a similar thing just to pop in. Uh, we, we show that most applicants will apply to at least nine schools yep. is the average right now. Yes, it is. Yeah. Awesome. Next question. Emily asks, are graduate courses looked at as, quote, lesser than undergraduate courses? Should I take undergrad courses while in grad school? So post back. So let, let's assume Emily here is, is talking about needing some grade repair uh, to to help show that she's academically capable. Courtney, this is a very common question. Undergrad postback versus master level classes. What is, is this another simple it depends on the school answer? Honestly, yeah, it is. It's another depends and it depends on on the type of program and what your specific academic record is showing. So, you know, if you had trouble with a lot of the prerequisite courses and, and things like that, it may be best for you to, to look at repeating some of those courses and not just skipping on to graduate work. There are programs, like master programs that are 10 months and could be good for you if you need um, a robust semester to kind of show instead of just taking one class here, one class there. So it's really going to depend on your specific record and the programs that you're looking at and the school that you're applying to and how they view, you know, 
Is it just the last 60 hours? Is it a cumulative look at everything? How many credit hours do you have in total for science versus your MCAT score? So I would say there's a lot of information that affects the answer to this question. Yeah. It depends. It depends. Russell, how has COVID affected how Adcom see grades and ECs? I'm just starting everything but uh, volunteering and I'm nervous. So Dr. Scott writes, and, and uh, actually, I don't know, Layla, if you were on that one. We we had an Inside Med Admissions panel about COVID impacting medical school admissions. Layla, I think you were on the, the LOR one. Um mm-hmm. But so anyone can go back and watch that inside med admissions discussion. But uh, Layla, I'll throw this to you in terms of COVID NECs, right? We're seeing students now that two years into the pandemic have probably less hours of shadowing and and more virtual shadowing, this kind of new thing that popped up um, and potentially less clinical experience and harder to get uh, LORs, stuff like that. What, how is COVID impacting the medical school admissions process from your perspective? Yeah, so I think for us, um, for me, and now having been at two different institutions because, uh, you know, during the pandemic, so we have seen a decline in the amount of hours students have been able to present for their extracurricular activities. Uh, I think many medical schools pivoted to this question that how did the pandemic affect your ability to prepare for med school? And I just want to advise everyone that, you know, you need to move away from writing that, you know, I couldn't volunteer and I couldn't do research because we kind of know that that was what happened. And so what else did you do instead is important. Um, I think medical, and just talking to friends that I have that do this kind of work, uh, we are looking very carefully at how you describe what you've learned from the experiences that you've had and what did you do instead. And so I get it that the labs were closed and hospitals were closed and all that. And what what did you do instead? So um, I think virtual shadowing is, is okay and it's fine as long as you tell us again um, what did you get from it? So mm-hmm. we're we're seeing fewer hours and we're trying to figure out other ways of how you have insight. The reason we want you to do that work is for the insight. So we're looking for that a little bit better. In grades, um, uh, so I've always been at institutions where we've accepted pass-fail, but you probably know that many schools began to accept pass-fail grading, particularly during the height of the pandemic when that's the only type of grades that institutions would um, would grant. So I I don't think you need to worry about that. Yeah. Good. I think we have time for one more question, potentially suggestions for getting LORs for non-trad students that are several years post-grad. So uh, the assumption I'm assuming is, is haven't taken classes, don't need to take classes, but still want to apply to medical school. Courtney, uh, Medical schools are weird because they have their required LORs. Um, I, I know one school that walks the walk, Sam Houston State, uh, they specifically say, like, if you've been out of school for one year, we'll accept various alternative letters of recommendations. They put it right on their admissions page, which is awesome. Other than that, what should students do to try to figure out LOR requirements if you haven't been in school for a while? Yeah, I would say reference what is available publicly, either on the websites or on, um, you know, for a comments, it would be the Choose DO Explorer. And we can be fairly explicit for 
letters of recommendation requirements. I would say non-traditional students, this is something that we run into very frequently. This is not uncommon. You are not alone in having a bit of trouble finding these letters. And I think a lot of schools do accommodate the length of time in which they consider a non-traditional student may be different. So, you know, if they have that information available, I would reference that. At my prior institution, it was three years outside of school would would qualify you as a non-traditional. And then we would accept two um, non-science employers for your letters of recommendation. However, if you had taken one or two science courses, say in a post-bac nature, we would want to see letters there. So I would say look for information if it's you know readily available at some of the schools that you're interested in to see if you can get that. If you have to provide science letters, you know, go ahead of time, know that you're going to have to do that and try to reestablish some relationships and some rapport with your prior institution and the science professors. And, you know, don't just give them a resume or email them and expect them to write you a really strong letter at that point. I would say it's going to take a little bit more legwork than that, but it's not, you know, an option that's no longer viable. Um, I've seen ones from instructors or professors that have you know, eventually retired in the meantime, and they were still able to get letters. So try to reestablish that relationship or build one if you never had one. Um, And, you know, seek the information that is available. Courtney Lewis, Dr. Scott Wright, Dr. Layla Amiri, we have come to our close here. Uh, It has gone too fast. I appreciate all of you. Thank you for your time, your expertise, uh, and your willingness to share it with everyone here today at MappedCon 22. And I look forward to all of you being at MappedCon 23 next year in person, uh, as we'll, we'll discuss soon. So thank you all. Hopefully that was a great session for everyone. This is MedEd Media.